You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning. Good to see all of you today. Today we're going to talk about rest. And, uh, yay. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you just all take a nap, and I'll come back in half an hour close. <laughs> nah, you can do that at home. I want to start out with, with one of Jesus' great offers from uh, Matthew. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. Are you weary? You feel kind of exhausted. Kind of like there's always more to do than time to do it. Kind of frustrated kind of burnt out. Jesus says he wants to give us rest. But it's not the rest of idleness. He says, take my yoke upon you. The farmers in the crowd that day knew exactly what Jesus meant. They, they knew that when you had a, a young, inexperienced ox, the way to train him was to put him in the yoke with an old, experienced yoke ox. And the older ox would be carrying all the weight of the plow. All the younger ox needed to do was just walk beside him. And Jesus says that's the way we experience rest. We don't experience rest as we don't do anything. It's not the rest of idleness. It's not uh, going to a beach and sipping drinks with umbrellas in them. That's not the kind of rest. It's a rest that you experience while laboring. But underneath the labor, there's a rest because Jesus is doing all the work. And that's how we experience his rest. And that's the rest that God has always wanted his people to experience. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we continue in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy takes place 40 years after God gave the law to Moses. The generation that God delivered from their slavery in Egypt have all died. They've wandered around the wilderness for 40 years because they were unwilling to trust God and go into the promised land. And now they've all died and their children have taken their place. And now Moses, as his last act, because he's not going to go to the promised land either, as his final act, he teaches the law again to this new generation. So Deuteronomy is really one big sermon where Moses is is a model for everybody who teaches the Bible and that all the Bible is true, but it applies in different ways in different times. And so now he applies it to this generation in the areas they need to have it applied. And today we're going to look at uh, what he does with the fourth commandment, the commandment to keep the Sabbath. We're going to look at the command. And we're going to 
talk about why Israel needed to be reminded to keep that command. And then most of our time will be spent on why does that command not appear in the New Testament? Why is the keep the Sabbath the one command of the ten that never appears in the New Testament? So that's where we're going today. Let's pray. I want you to pray silently and ask God to speak to your heart today. And then I'll, I'll close. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your spirit to live in us, that we might know the things you've given us. And we pray that you'll be our teacher today. I pray, Lord, that you'll speak through me and speak, speak to us, and we'll give you the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the command to rest in Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Moses says, Observe the Sabbath day, and keep it holy, as the Lord God commanded you. Holy means to be set apart for God, and set apart from everything that is unholy and ungodly. And so God says, I want you to set one day a week apart. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. God rested on the seventh day from creation, and he wants us to enter into his rest. He, uh, he wants us to imitate him and rest. And so God says, all he tells them to do is just don't do any work. He doesn't really tell them what to do with the day. just says don't do any work on it. I want you to notice that it wasn't just for the, the wealthy Hebrews who could afford to take a day off. You, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you, so that, that your male and female servant may rest as well. Everybody was to rest. All the Israelites, all their servants, the visitors, the domestic animals, so they could be blessed by God. Just rest one day a week. God doesn't tell them how to spend their day of rest, except he says in verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, that the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. One thing they're to do on their day of rest is remember the Lord. Remember, they were slaves. They, they worked seven days a week. And their masters didn't care if they lived or died, just as long as they did their work. And God, in his great goodness and mercy, has delivered them from that. So it's a day of rest to remember God. Remember how much God loves you and how good he's been. That's, that's the command we're, we're talking about. As you go into the promised land, remember to rest. So how did Israel do in keeping that command? Well, between Moses and Babylon, there's very few references to the Sabbath. It, it seems that it kind of depended who, who the, was the king. If the king feared the Lord, people would kind of keep the Sabbath. If the 
king worshipped idols like the majority of them did. They ignored the Sabbath. We have one clue about how good or bad they were in keeping the Sabbath. God not only commanded them to take one day out of the week to rest, but he commanded them to rest one year out of every seven. It's called a sabbatical year. And in that year, they were let the land rest. They weren't to, to plant anything or harvest anything. Just let the land rest. Trust that God would provide for you for that year and the next year since there wouldn't be any harvest. And we know they very seldom, if ever, did that. They trusted themselves. And so that in uh, First Chron- Second Chronicles 36, 21, when they go to Babylon, says, the Lord, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. They had ignored at least 70 Sabbath rests, which would be 490 years worth. And so God says, I'm sending you to Babylon just to give the land a break from you people. So in between Moses and, and Babylon, they pretty much ignored the Sabbath. And because it takes faith, to, it takes more faith to rest a day a week, because then you've got to trust, well, God's going to make it up, than to, to keep working all the time, which especially as farmers, that's what they would tend to do. Well, when they get back from Babylon, they realize the reason we were sent to Babylon is because we ignored the law. Because the law says that in Deuteronomy. We'll see that later. God says, if you don't keep the law, I'm going to remove you from the land. So they come back and they're, they're committed to the Sabbath. In fact, they become fanatics on the Sabbath. But for them, it's not a day of rest. It's a day not to work. And so to make sure nobody works, they have hundreds of laws of what constitutes work. So by the time of Jesus, the Sabbath wasn't a blessing. It was a burden because everybody, oh, I hope I don't work today. The Sabbath police are going to get me. And Jesus has to remind them, the Sabbath, you weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. And that's why he seemed to delight in, in healing people on the Sabbath. It just drove the religious people crazy. And he said, is it lawful to do good or bad? Is it lawful to do anything on the Sabbath? Well, that's where it's come. So here's the question. If the Sabbath is so important, why doesn't the command to keep the Sabbath repeated in the New Testament? I mean, some people say, well, it's because Jesus rose on Sunday. So the early church changed Saturday to Sunday. And Sunday is our Sabbath. Problem is, the Bible never says that. Bible never associates Sunday with a day of rest. Paul says in Romans 14, one Christian observes every day alike. Another Christian observes one day more important than the other. So who's right, Paul? He says, let each man be convinced in his own mind. You have freedom. You can, you can do it. The Sabbath is not repeated. And so the question is, why? And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. And and. And, and here's the short answer. The Sabbath is like the animal sacrifices, like the priesthood, like the dietary laws, like the temple. These were all pictures of the reality that Jesus would bring when he comes. 
But now that we have the reality, we no longer need the pictures. You say, where do you get that? Well, we're going to go to the book of Hebrews because that's exactly what the book of Hebrews teaches today. In Hebrews chapter 1, by the way, who are the, who's the letter to the Hebrews to? This is not a trick question. <laughs> it's to the Hebrews, which means Jewish Christians, or at least people who are part of the Jewish church. So all the Old Testament rituals and, and holidays, and it's very important to these people to figure out, well, how does this work now that Jesus has come? In chapters 1 and 2, the writer emphasizes that Jesus is the final revelation of God. And then, from then on, beginning in chapter 3, he says, therefore, you better listen to him carefully, because what he says is important. And he starts by quoting from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 was very familiar to the Hebrews because it was quoted at the beginning of every synagogue service. And we read Psalm 95 earlier this morning. We'll read it again here. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, he's quoting Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my, what? My rest. So this whole passage now is going to be about God's rest. Psalm 95 is a psalm about why that first generation, the generation that God delivered from their slavery out of Egypt, never made it into the promised land. God delivered them from Egypt, the most powerful nation of the world, with great miracles and wonders. He led them across the Red Sea, and when the Egyptians tried it, they were drowned. The whole sea collapsed in on them. He fed them every day. He gave them water to drink. He protected them. They had his visible presence with them all the time. They, he led them around the, the, the desert in a cloud by day and a cloud of fire by night. He spoke to them. He gave them his law. And then he brings them right up to the border of the promised land. And he said, here is the land I promised to give to your forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just go over there and take it. I'll go with you. I'll fight your battles for you. You want... It's guaranteed. But the Israelites started to cry. And they said, we want to go back to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt than go die over there. In spite of all that God had done for them, they refused to trust him. And so God says, the trip to the promised land is off. You will wander around the wilderness for 40 years, you'll just keep taking laps around the wilderness until every one of you is dead, and then I will give the land to your children. That's the incident that, that, uh, that Psalm 95 is talking about, that David writes about. 
Now the writer applies Psalm 95 to these Christians in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, because the wilderness Hebrews were unable to enter the promised land, which God calls his rest, therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. I know you all think you're Christians, but some of you are not. Some of you have not entered his rest. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, they being the Hebrews in the wilderness. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have, what? Believed. Enter that rest. Who enters God's rest? Those who believe. We who have believed. The writer says there are parallels between the wilderness Hebrews and these Hebrews. First of all, both of them have heard good news. Moses sent 12 spies to spy out the land. They came back. Ten of them brought bad news. Two of them brought good news. Ten of them said, oh, it's a rough land. There's giants there. We're going to get killed. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, it's the greatest land in the world. We should by all means go. God's going to fight for us. It's going to be so cool. They had good news. God's going to give you this land. But they didn't believe. And the Hebrews he's writing to have had good news too. God has delivered you from sin and from death through the death of his son and his resurrection. God has given you everything you need. But apparently some of them hadn't believed either. So the good news they received didn't do them any good because they didn't believe it. And he's saying the same way, if you don't believe what Jesus has said about salvation, you won't be saved either. The Bible will not change your life unless you believe it. You can know it all, but it won't change your life. It won't save you unless you believe it. When I became a Christian, I was uh, 20 years old, and uh, I got associated with a Christian a Christian college student group, and uh, they said, to be a Christian, all you need to do is ask Jesus to come into your life. And I asked him to come into my life every day. Just kept asking him to come in. And it wasn't until I sat down with my, my friend Faith Myatt, who was an older woman who kind of led this group, and, and she took me to Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. And she said, did you open the door of your life? And I said, right. <laughs> and she says, so where is Jesus right now? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Where is Jesus right now? I guess he's in me. 
So how do you know that Jesus has answered your prayer? Would he lie to you? No. So you know he's answered your prayer based on his trustworthiness. And from that point on, I stopped asking Jesus to come into my life, and I thanked him that he had come in. And that's when I saw my life begin to change. That's when I began to experience his power and his presence and changing my heart and all these things. The Bible is not a magical book. It won't change your life until you believe it. That's why he says, we who have believed enter that rest. And just as unbelief kept the wilderness Hebrews out of the promised land, unbelief will keep you so-called Christians out of heaven. Now, at this point, somebody in the crowd is going to say, wait a minute. How can you say that a promise remains of entering his rest? Haven't we been observing the Sabbath for centuries? Haven't we been living in the promised land for centuries? What does God mean by his rest? And the writer explains that. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, quoting from Psalm 95, to prove that there still remains a rest to be entered. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, from Psalm 95. God rested on the seventh day of creation so that God's rest has been in existence throughout all creation. That's why Hebrews 4, 6 says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, remember verse 1, a promise remains of entering God's rest. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter it because of disobedience, which be the Hebrews in the wilderness. He again fixes a certain day in Psalm 95, today saying through Adam, David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now here's his argument. Joshua led the Israelites to take the promised land, and Israel lived there for 400 years. Then 400 years later, David speaks through I mean, God speaks through David and says, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts or else you will not be able to enter my rest. So the rest of God is more than the Sabbath. The rest of God is more than the promised land. Because here are these Hebrews now, they've been practicing the Sabbath, they've been living in the promised land and God's, and yet the writer says there still remains a rest to be entered. So what is the rest of God? Verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So what exactly is God's rest? If God's rest isn't the Sabbath, God's rest isn't the promised land, what is God's rest? And he tells us here in verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So what's the rest of God? It's salvation. 
We are saved when we rest, when we stop trying to save ourselves by our good works. And we rest in what God has done for us through Christ. We realize we can't work our way to salvation. We rest our way into salvation because we depend on what God has done for us through Christ. I often say, and you, you've heard me, that religion is spelled D-O. Because every religion is about the same thing. Every religion is about what you and I must do to be accepted by God. Rules we have to keep. Rituals we have to obey. Meetings we have to attend. Organizations we have to belong to. You must do all these things to be accepted by God. But Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Because Christianity is not about what I must do to be saved. It's what God has done to save me. That the good news of the gospel is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He sends Jesus to become a human being in order to be our champion. In order to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, he lives the life we fail to live obeying all of God's commandments perfectly so that God can credit us as a gift with his perfect record of righteousness. He dies on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. God pours out his wrath on him so that he can forgive us. He rises from the dead, defeating death in our behalf so that we can live forever. And the way we are saved is by resting in what he has done rather than working on it by ourselves. That makes sense? And that's the rest of God. We who have believed enter that rest. So that's what the Sabbath, and that's what the promised land picture. You've already seen how the, the Sabbath was a picture of rest. In the promised land, God said that he was giving that land as a gift to his people. That they weren't going to earn it. They weren't going to deserve it. He was just giving. He says, I'm giving you houses you did not build and towns you did not construct and lands that you did not buy and, and herds and flocks that you did not grow and and and." crops and vineyards you did not plant or cultivate. I'm, it's all a gift to you. That's why he called the promised land my rest. Because all the people of God had to do was go in and claim it. It was all there ready for them. God had done all the work. They just had to claim it. So the rest of God is resting from our efforts and resting on God's efforts. However, since the Sabbath and the promised land are pictures of God's rest and not the rest, it's possible to celebrate the Sabbath and to live in the promised land and still not be in the rest of God. Does that make sense? God's rest is still entered by faith. We who believe enter that rest. And there, that's why he says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest 
so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience, that of the Israelites in the wilderness. How do I enter God's rest? And how do I know if I've entered it? I become a Christian the instant I stop depending on myself. I stop depending on anything good I may have done. I say, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And I come to Jesus and throw myself on his mercy and say, I don't deserve for you to save me, but you've offered it. You invited me to come, and I'm coming. Come into my life. Forgive my sins and make me the person you want me to be. Not because I deserve it, but because you are a great and loving God. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Take this seriously. If you're not sure whether you're a Christian, if you're not sure whether you've ever put your full trust, you're rested completely on him, then do it now. Say, Jesus, I'm not a good person, but you can make me good. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What he's saying there is you can't fake faith. You can't just go through the outward motions and fool God. God sees your heart. He's able to discern. Make sure your faith is real. We who believe, and only we who believe, enter that rest. So if you have any doubts at all, give yourself to God. I, you can't live the Christian life. You can't be good enough. You'll never be good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. Rest in what he's done. Now, most of you know this. That's how we enter God's rest, but it's possible to have entered that God's rest and not be resting. And that's why so many of us are tired. Let's say you want to give your parents a big party for their 50th wedding anniversary. And so you, you, do, you, you send out the invitations, you get the food, you, get, you just organize this. But your mom is one of those women she says, okay, what do you want me to bring? Oh, mom, you don't have to bring anything. It's, this is for you and dad. We just want you to relax and enjoy yourself. Oh, I can, you know, have, have you got tablecloths? I can, I can wash and iron the tablecloths and bring, no, mom, we, the tablecloths are taken care of. Have you got centerpieces? I, I can put together some, no, mom, we've got centerpieces, okay. Well, is somebody bringing desserts? You know, your dad can't eat sugar. I, I can bring a great, no, mom. Mom, why can't she relax? Because she defines herself in terms of what she produces, in what she does, in what she controls. And she feels worthless if she's not in the middle of everything making it all happen. Yeah, do you know any moms like that? And that's what happens to Christians. We know we're saved completely by what Christ has done. But we never make the link between what Christ has done and who I am 
that my worth, my identity comes from his, what he has done and what he says, and not from myself. Does that make sense? And that's why we're exhausted. Because we're working for something that Jesus has already done. Colossians 2, 6, and 7, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? How do you receive Jesus? By faith. How do you walk with him? By faith. And that's what Jesus is offering back here in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Let's look at this again. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. How do we experience Christ's rest? By taking his yoke on us and walking with him and laboring with him and letting him give us what we need to accomplish that labor, whether it be energy, our wisdom, our courage, our love, our peace. It is labor on the outside, but it's rest on the inside because I'm resting in his power. I'm resting in his ability. I'm resting in what he gives me rather than in myself. There's labor, but underneath the labor, there's rest. My job is to rest. His job is to do. That's why he says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. How much could you do to save yourself? How much can you do to serve him? Nothing. By the way, that word abide just means to rest, to be at home, to relax in him, to focus on him. Apart from me, you can do nothing, and yet Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but his grace with me. Resting is not idleness. In fact, you probably realize that when you're idle, you're pretty dissatisfied. Isn't that true? It just sounds so good to just do nothing for a day. You get through an hour or so, and you say, this is pretty boring. <laughs> Got to be something I can do here, right? Resting is not idle. It's labor, but it's laboring with Jesus. Rest beneath the labor. Isaiah thirty fifteen has been helpful to me. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. How are we saved? Repentance, turning to God from sin, and rest. Resting in what he has already done for us through Christ. 
in quietness and trust is your strength. Where do you find strength? Quietness and trust, strength, you just depend on him, resting in him. I find that when I'm not resting in his power, I focus on the work. And I begin to get uptight and anxious and got to get it done. Or I should look for shortcuts. Or I uh, get self-confident. But when I look to him and ask him to do the work through me, there's labor, but there's also joy because I'm working with Jesus. The old ox is pulling the plow. Young ox is just walking along beside him. It's not that you don't get tired, but you don't get that weariness of soul where you're just tired of everything and everything is unfulfilling and there's got to be more to life than this. And it's, it, it, we can get mentally tired, you can get physically tired, but if you get tired in your soul, it's because somehow you've gotten out of the, out of the yoke. You're trying to do stuff on your own. You don't have the power to do. And so go back, put the yoke back on you. Begin to spend time with him. Get to know him. Pray. Read his word. Let him speak through you. And then whatever you have to do, just say, okay, Lord, this is what I got to do today. I pray you'll do it through me. Give me. And you'll find a joy. You'll still get tired. But you won't be discouraged. You won't be disheartened. You won't be burnt out. You won't be weary. That's what it means to rest in him. If you feel overworked or stressed, burn out, your joy's gone, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. That's the rest that God calls us all to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our joy and our strength. Thank you that you give us grace for everything you call us to. Help us to be people of faith who depend on you and not on ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.